Welcome to the Free Your Energy podcast. 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 I wanted to create a space where I could chat with thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, authors, and health and wellness experts to discuss how we can free ourselves spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, financially, and beyond. I care about mindset, movement, and positive relationships. And I created this podcast for people who also care about these topics and expansion. 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 As a as a psychologist, maybe you could speak to that just a little bit more. Just uh, just that yeah. invitation to, you know, live authentically. To say, hey, you know what? I'm actually not capable of doing this right now, or I actually don't have that capacity, or even the opposite of it is like, yes, I'm ready for this opportunity. Like pick me, choose me. Mm. I'm ready. Like call on me. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could speak to that a little bit more for us. Sure. I guess what I'd love to say is, you know, we do live in, in a society that fetishizes the hustle and grind and saying yes all the time when that might not be aligned with where you're at, literally like with someone's bandwidth physically and mentally. And if it's not aligned with someone's bandwidth, they're pushing to the point of burnout, which actually puts people at increased risk for mental health challenges. However, I feel like for so many reasons, we're just, you know, saying yes when it's not aligned, whether that's because, you know, we, and this is getting into, you know, a a big topic, but um, I'll just say quickly, whether it's because we have people pleasing tendencies or whether because we're finding our worth in our productivity or our success, or we feel like maybe there, you know, even maybe there's a scarcity mindset that if we say no, that the opportunity won't be there in the end, I think for all of those reasons and even more, right, we often don't listen to ourselves and what our body needs, even those interoceptive experiences. And what I mean by that is literally our body, like what are our body cues? Like, are we exhausted? Um, you know, are we aching? Are we fatigued? Um, what's the body telling us? And I think that the lesson that I've learned most profoundly is Saying no, you know, and really just listening to my own self um, makes space for so much more than I could have imagined had I said yes <laughs> and not been ready. And on the flip, I think, I think it's, I think what I've noticed is that, and maybe this is going to be shocking and mind blowing for people. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the flip. What I've noticed is that people don't necessarily come to me because they have a fear of failure. Most people that I see, I maybe this is shocking. Most people that I see, and of course I'm not generalizing. This is like a small sample. Most people fear leveling up and they fear success. They fear saying yes. And I think that's the misconception about, um, you know, failure versus success that people think that if you don't dive in or say yes, you know, or say yes, it's because you're afraid of failure. And really what lurks underneath, whether it's conscious yet or not yet conscious, is that fear of just like leaning into the light that you are. 
and to the love that you are. I know you speak a lot about the fact that we are love. And I think that is painful for people to say yes, because that means that they will rise up and be their authentic selves and, and shine their light. Yeah, I totally second that. I I do uh, one-on-one coaching with people, mindset coaching, just trying to be a mirror to people, but also, you know, introspect and go deeper with them. And what you just said made me think of two specific clients that I'm working with. And um, they have completely different stories if you're looking Mm -hmm. at uh, age, race, uh, occupations, things of that nature. But when I look at it from the seat I'm sitting in, they have the exact same story. Mm. They're both pursuing like this next level of success, this next level of, uh, you know, leveling up. And once I get this, you know, I'll feel good. Or once I get that, Mm. I'll feel great. And with both of them, what I find myself doing, because they're already self-starters, they're already, quote unquote, go-getters, as we say. Mm. But then it's just like there's just this mental block where they don't acknowledge the work that they've done. Like they don't see their success. They don't see, they are successful if you were to compare them to others, Mm. but through their lens, they're not successful. And so there's almost like this reframe that I catch myself doing with them to kind of just slow them down and get them in the moment. You know, like like this morning specifically, I remember my client was talking about um, all these things he needs to do. He needs to do this and he needs to do this. like just naming all these goals. Mm. And I said, Hey, I hope you can just take a second. To yes. Just really see all the work that you're doing. You hired, you have me as your mindset coach. You have an acting coach. You have a therapist. You're a great husband. You're a great father. You're learning about yourself. You're growing. You're still making time for friends. Like can you just take a second just to see you already won? Like you've already won the game. There's nothing else that you're going to do that is going to give you a want a win because you are winning as we speak. And uh, I was talking to um, maybe you're familiar with her. If not, I definitely have to introduce you. Uh, there's a psychotherapist here in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. Her name is Dr. Adrienne Fletcher. She's a friend of the podcast. I 100% have to introduce you because your guys' energy is so aligned. And she was talking about just the different stages of healing. And, you know, she was talking about the survival phase and then the thriving phase and how some people don't transition through like a thriving phase, but then how some people transition to a thriving phase and they don't even recognize it because they're keeping everything that they used from like a survival standpoint because of their, their trauma. Mm. Could you speak to that yeah. for us? Uh, maybe, maybe from two angles, maybe could you speak to it? Um, like, you know, how do we begin to leave the survival phase? And then for those of us who maybe have left or we feel ourselves mm-hmm. leaving, how do we lean more into our thriving stage? Yeah. I really, really appreciate this question. And I'm actually going to come out with a term that I coined, unless someone else claims credit for it. I've used it for years and years on social media. And I'm going to talk about the grayness of it all and tell you about surthriving. And so I don't think that we have to either either be thriving 
or surviving. And I think that's one of the myths that actually hold us back because I don't believe that you have to be quote unquote fully healed to fully live. And I think all this black and white thinking, and I see it in myself and I see it in my clients, makes us think, think make us think, whatever, you know the grammar, that um, we're either or, right? And why isn't it both and? Sometimes we're surviving only, and sometimes we're thriving only, and sometimes we're kind of both. And I think that's the key. I think that in any given moment, we have to just radically accept wherever it is that we are. That doesn't mean passively resign to it or, you know, resist healing. That just means to resist our current reality, the circumstances that we're in in this actual moment will lead to greater suffering. And sometimes we have a foot in surviving and sometimes we have a foot in thriving and that's okay too, right? And, you know, I think there's a need to sort of embrace that, right? I don't think it's an either or. I think it's both and, and I, and I, I stand by that. Um, survive, sur thriving to me is as a chronic pain, um, I'll say Sir Thriver, <laughs> is waking up every morning with the threat of living and living anyway, and humbly showing up in the way that I can in that moment, whether it's taking one foot, you know, off the bed or actually getting up out of bed, seeing a full day of clients, seeing only a half day of clients, taking my migraine meds, whether it's you know, needing an endometriosis heat pack while I'm working, whatever it is, I think we have to be open to living with the threat of living with some challenges. I'm happy to say more. I can rant. I just want to, I want to hear you take your take. Uh, well, it's, it's not every day that we get to speak to someone of your caliber. So if you want to riff and rant and go <laughs> along tangents, we are more than welcome for that. And feel free to use, um, there's a pretty sophisticated audience here. So feel free to use as much terminology as you want to, you know, to introduce us yeah. a different language that will help us. Because honestly, our whole mission here is, and, and you know this in your work, is if we can just... One percent, you know, whether it's moving a little bit of our mindset, moving our energy, mm. maybe moving our habits, just one percent mm. just to just free ourselves a yeah. little bit more. That's our goal here. So I don't feel that. like you're taking up too much space because this space is yours. Thank you. And maybe that's honestly an unhelpful story that I'm keeping. Right. Like maybe I was telling myself, right. I'm taking up too much space. So I appreciate that permission. And I'm glad that I was able to see that and to just like look at that and recognize, hey, you're, you, you feel like you're taking up space right now and you can, it's okay. So I appreciate that. I guess the bottom line I want to say is that, you know, I speak a lot about how okay just surviving is, and it really is. You know, if you're just waking up and breathing and getting from point A to point A and a third, you're winning. <laughs> I also just, want to make it very clear that I also do believe that there's more waiting for all survivors, whether it's trauma survivors. And I think that on the other side of trauma-informed work, 
is so much more than our past selves can even envision. And, you know, sometimes we're surviving, like I said, just getting up, taking a breath on, you know, not able to function past that. Sometimes we're thriving and in different times we're still thriving. And I think we just have to be open to experiencing all of those at different times and in different seasons. And who to whoever's listening, if you're surviving, I honor you. And I also want you to know that I believe you can find joy, even in pockets of moments. And I guess that's what surviving is to me, right? Finding joy, even in pockets of moments when, you know, you're still in that survival mode, when you're still just, um, just making it from literally moment to moment. You have a post that I screenshot it, saved it to my phone, and I always go back to it every time I catch myself trying to shift a habit. And the mm-hmm. post says, repetition rewires the brain. <laughs> and you put it on there like eight times, like repetition rewires the brain. Um, done videos on it. You you post it pretty often. So I'm noticing that that's a theme that yes. is super important. Can you speak to us about, uh, yes. can you speak to us about that? Okay. Thank you. You're all, you're, you gave me permission to, to, to nerd out and just speak. So I'm going to receive that. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate that. And I'm very humbled, um, by the way, that that spoke to you. So basically what I say is repetition will rewire the brain. Repetition rewires the brain because that's true, right? Our life experiences are a reflection of the thoughts and behaviors, you know, we're repeating, or I guess, put in a slightly different way, it thrives on consistency. So if we were lifting weights, hoisting five to 10 pound weights for five minutes a day, every day, we would change our physique and make ourselves stronger. And, you know, even if it's slow, even if it's steady, the changes won't happen overnight, right? But in time, the results will become clear. And the same with our brain, right? Because of the science of neuroplasticity, which speaks to the fact that the brain is malleable, that we can be our own neuroarchitects. We can practice changing our thoughts or at least, you know, recognizing them gently and maybe challenging them a little bit um, to more accurate and then maybe even to more positive ones. And then you know, our behaviors and that doing these things repetitively will actually change our brain. And again, it's hard to measure the brain's progress because unlike our muscles, we can't see our circuitry, right? So forming new healthy connections, you know, we can't really see that unless we, unless we study all of us and put us all ourselves all in functional MRIs imaging, but we can see our brain circuitry forming new healthy connections in the same way that we can see our muscles strengthening, at least not yet, (laughs) but over time we will feel it. But here's the thing. This is a very empowering thing, but it's not easy. And so I would say that while repetition rewires the brain, let's call that repetition consistency. There's another C that's equally important in this algorithm. And that is underlooked 
and underemphasized, and that is compassion. So just like consistency is so crucial, so is compassion. Because if we try to do this consistent work, but then we're beating ourselves up for the day or 700 when we're struggling, we won't develop these new neural pathways. And that I think is the T. And I'll wait to hear from you a little bit on this, but I'd love to share a metaphor about how, um, you know, a lot of people say, okay, what does that mean to create new pathways and repetition rewires the brain? Um, can you give me a metaphor? So I'd love to give one. I don't know if you want me to give it now or wait a little bit. Yeah, please, please. So I guess, and let me <laughs> breathe because I'm just like, gotta, gotta organize this in my mind. Okay, so the, there's a meadow of grass and that's your brain. And I want you to envision, right, beautiful, luscious grass that's maybe overgrown. So those are the neural pathways that are sort of more passive and not being used. And now I want you to visualize indentations in the grass, right? Like a trail, even a path where you're walking. Those are the neural pathways getting a lot of use. And so when I speak to repetition rewires the brain, the way it works is that when we want to kindle another pathway, we first have to take that first step over that luscious, overgrown grass. And the beauty of neuroplasticity is that the next time we go to take a step in the overgrown grass, it will be a little less overgrown. And the thing that we're trying to do will be that much easier, even 0.0001% easier, right? And so each step that we take signals to the grass that it's being used. It's a cue. Oh, let's use this grass, right? Until it becomes automatic and we hardly see any grass. We just see the dirt now that we're walking on. And then what we also notice is that where the indentations were, it's starting to grow because we haven't walked on it as much, right? And so each thought and behavior is like that. So what we're repeating can be replaced with, you know, what we're repeating really matters. And I think, you know, the thing I like to say and talk about with my clients is make sure that you're intentionally taking steps in your meadow. And for me, I'm a very visual person and just um, studying poetry and I love a good metaphor. And so this really speaks to me more than anything, honestly, just picturing that grass that I could walk over the overgrown grass and then come back to it and then come back to it. And each time it's less overgrown and finally becomes a trail. And that's a more positive habit, a more adaptive habit. And then I can also watch the place where there was maybe a habit that was not serving me that was, you know, really well <laughs> trodden and to watch it just grow because it's no longer being used as much. So I'd love to hear if you liked that. As soon as you said metal, yeah. I, I closed my eyes and I mm. imagined it. And yeah. what I found to be most interesting is that I pictured it in the daytime. I pictured the sun above. Yes. I pictured there was a few clouds. I pictured perfect weather and 
I pictured myself walking through this meadow, being a kid almost, being curious. Like, okay, well, I can walk over here. I can walk over here. And the imagery of it that you gave me, now when I know that I'm trying to make a new habit, I'm going to go back to that image of just being a, it was, I was in my adult body, but I was in my child energy of just walking through this meadow, you know, because I, when you're a kid, it's easier to form these, mm. these pathways because you're not necessarily judging and grading. And there's often not a lot of data. Uh, like you, mm. you can't do this. There's no data. You're just like, oh, let's see. Um, mm. So yeah, that was helpful to me. That there's was no very question. helpful to me. I'm so, so glad. And yeah, you know, it actually um, makes me think of a few things, but you're right. Like as a kid, right? There's no precedent. We don't have that memory of all the times we tried and it didn't work. We just go, we just run. We just, you know, we go at it. Um, and also, you know, I am a mindful, one of the mindfulness practices that I have in my book is a visual guided imagery. And I think actually, now that I'm thinking of it, that this could be paired really well, um, with whatever it is, um, you know, whatever habit we're using, we can just visualize literally doing it. And at the same time, like walking over that grass, like maybe this can be, maybe we can utilize this somehow, right. Um, you know, to guide us. Yeah. I definitely wanted to jam with you on your book, quick, calm, easy meditations to short circuit stress using mindfulness and neuroscience. So my relationship with uh, meditation specifically started about two to three years ago. Um, it, it started in high school, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And so I'm going to share with you this story. Yes. Um, I was an athlete. I played football and track. And I remember before my football games, you would, the coach would always say, practice at game speed. And then, <clears throat> you know, practice literally as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. And then before, like right before the games, we would do what in sports is called walkthroughs, where you will walk through all the situations, you will walk through all the plays, you will walk through all the potential things that you practice all week, but all the potential things that may happen in the game. And so I asked my coach one day, I said, coach, why do we do walkthroughs before the game when we literally practice these plays all week? Mm. And he goes, Son, it's the psychology of it. You have to see yourself winning. You have to see yourself doing the things that you want to do. Whatever it is in life, you have to imagine yourself doing it. And, you know, it was one of those things. I was, I think I was 17. Didn't really, you know, yeah. it didn't really, I didn't really get it because it was <laughs> so far beyond my comprehension at the time. I just was like, okay, coach, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you know, and then obviously later on, once I came to learn different types of meditations and started practicing meditation, then I was able to recall that that moment from high school. And it was like, wow, my coach was actually teaching me how to manifest. He was teaching me mindfulness. He was teaching me meditation. It just wasn't framed as that. So I love that. Um, yeah. So then um, about three years ago, I started meditating in the afternoon when I would get done with my work, I would meditate almost as like a demarcation from, okay, my work is done and now I'm going back to my life. So let me kind of just use my meditation to decompress. Uh, so I'm curious, um, Hey, like, you know, 
if you could talk to us about meditation from the neuroscience perspective and why we should do it, how we could do it, just kind of, yeah, bring us in. Yeah. So I guess the meditation that I focus in on is, right, mindfulness practice. And so I'll speak to that, though there are other types of meditation, right, like transcendental. I'm most familiar with with mindfulness, right? That's my area of study. Um, And I guess, you know, it's been used, obviously, for thousands of years. And um, I guess at the core is the goal of ending suffering, whatever that means. And then mindfulness was stripped of its philosophical and religious, you know, philosophies by someone called John Kabat-Zinn. And he applied it as a secular adjunctive technique to Western psychological interventions. And it really took off. He started in the 70s and 80s with a cohort of chronic pain patients, right, to help them relate to their suffering in an alternative way. And then he, I mean, the the results were profound. And since that time, there have been hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of studies. But right, if there was, um, if we did like a line chart um, to express and, you know, to illustrate the, how mindfulness was studies, studied as an actual, right, efficacious, like intervention um, to help our mental well-being it would just go exponentially, you know, it would just be like a line that's like shooting up (laughs) because from the seventies until now, the research just like burgeoned. And that's what I think is so amazing about mindfulness is because I think it's so well researched at this point. And of course, you know, we always need a, a bigger body of research, especially with different cohorts and, you know, different demographics. However, it's just remarkable. And mindfulness really like spoke to me. And the way that John Kabat-Zinn defines it is, so mindfulness is a state of greater awareness that's cultivated by paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So Mindfulness is the state and mindfulness meditation is the practice that we do to achieve mindfulness, right? Because some people, right, we use the words like, oh, I'm practicing mindfulness or I'm going to just do mindfulness. Mindfulness is the state and mindfulness meditation is the practice we use to get there. And the state of mindfulness is that of greater awareness, and again, stop me or not, because I can go on and on about this. <laughs> I literally wrote a book about it. However, I'm incapable of sitting here talking about my book only without mentioning that you are the most, one of the most prolific authors I know. Your books are extraordinary. You have a new one that's out. <laughs> I just, I just can't. It's not that I don't find value in what I'm doing. I really, really do. I just, I'm just, I really just want to mention as well that your books speak to this too. It might not necessarily say mindfulness in the brain. However, what you're doing is creating this greater awareness for people. 
I received that. Thank you. And and my follow up to that is when a person is hearing, hey, do mindfulness, do meditation, come to the present moment. And they're hearing these things, but then they have very pragmatic reasons not to do that. You know, mm-hmm. you have to pick up the kids at three. You have to get yeah. some pampers. You have a assignment due next week. You have to study for this exam. You want to plan a trip to Spain, right? So how do we, and how do we become more mindful or yeah. develop the habit of being mindful and practicing mindful meditations while still living and having these pragmatic future events that will happen? Yeah, and I, what, why I really appreciate that question, and again, we didn't go over what questions you were going to ask, and so you literally instinctually asked me that. And why I re- literally appreciate that is because one of the main te- tenets of my book is that all we need is five minutes a day every day, right? Coming back to that repetition rewire, rewires the brain mantra, that we don't need an hour or two hours every day. In fact. Five practicing five minutes a day every day is more efficient for us than practicing one hour once a week. And okay, someone could say that they don't have five minutes, but I will challenge that. <laughs> we all have five minutes, right? Most most of us have five minutes. Um, and if we just took back that time and claimed it as our own, um we could cue our brain to more wellness because if you're repeating, remember that metaphor, if we're doing something every day, we're telling the brain, oh, we're doing this. And the other thing I want to say to that is just like you can do it for five minutes a day, every day, and that that's helpful. Of course, we need compassion for the day that you can't do it or the day that you forget to do it, whatever it is. And the the last thing I want to say, maybe <laughs> another thing I want to say about that is that I think we have this image of what mindfulness needs to be in order to be helpful. And that is, you know, someone on a cushion in lotus position, eyes closed, you know, maybe it's a dark, cool space with no one around. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's pretty hard to come by, right? Every day, all day. And so the beauty of mindfulness is that we don't just have to practice in a formal way. We can practice in a more informal way. And again, another um, tenet of my book is that we can practice mindfulness whatever we're, with whatever we're doing anyway. So if we're washing the dishes, okay, make it mindful. If we're sweeping the floor, brushing our teeth, okay, mindful. Uh, let's make it mindful, right? I think there's a Zen saying that when you drink, just drink. Um, and even the extraordinary Thich Nhat Hanh spoke about washing dishes <laughs> as a mindfulness practice. So basically, that idea that mindfulness isn't just reserved for the cushion. Right? You don't need to be sitting somewhere specific to stay non-judgmentally present to every sensation as it unfolds. If you would like to support the Free Your Energy podcast, go to sylvestermcnutt.net slash podcast. For $8.88 a month, you'll be able to help me keep this podcast running at a consistent rate. 
The money goes towards the web service, my engineer, and anything else I need to book guests and to bring you the best value possible. To support the podcast, go to sylvestermcnutt.net slash podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So in the book, you have you know, 30 different practices that we can do uh, around mindfulness. One of them that I want to ask you about is mindful listening. I feel like this is one. Now, just so you know about me, I studied communications in college. Mm-hmm. So, okay. you know, we had to learn all about active listening, the communication model, noise feedback. We had to learn everything about the art of listening. And what I, this is just my own personal observation. What I noticed is that most people <laughs> are terrible listeners. <laughs> uh, and you know, I, I say that, you know, having fun jokingly, but I honestly truly believe that mm. we can enhance our relationships by becoming better listeners. And so I'm curious if you could, could speak to the mindful listening portion, which is practice 26 in your book. Yes, of course. And I guess um, before that, I just want to note that the mindful listening is actually in a section of the book that is um, mindful living, right? So I- Yep, mindful living. Yeah, I organize the practices in formal, right? Formal, like sitting on the cushion and lotus, like I spoke about, and then informal practice, which is like, if you're drinking, drink mindfully. And if you're sweeping, sweep mindfully. And then we have this mindful living section. And that was the section devoted to what happens when your continued formal and informal practice actually impacts your relationships with yourself and your others, right? Like, right. Like how does this continued practice help you show up in this world more mindfully? So it becomes more than a practice, right? It's almost like a way of life. It's a way of life that encompasses gratitude, loving kindness, and So mindful listening is one of those practices. It's how we show up more mindfully. It's how we show up in relationship. It's really taking time to listen to another person without that reactivity, right? Because we're usually listening and we're usually looking for that place where we're just going to jump in and impulsively react to what they're saying. And I think when you get to listen mindfully, you're creating space to um, for everyone to feel heard. And I can't think of anything more profound and more healing than being heard, than really truly feeling like you're being heard. I don't know if uh, many people have that, whether it's in our relationships with partners or um, business partners, whatever it is, even with children. Right. I don't know if we're really allowing for that space. And I feel like that space is just incomparable. Yeah. And again, it's, I think the main takeaway of all these practices is that it's all a practice, right? They're all practices. So this isn't you try it and you're perfect at it. There is no perfection. You speak a lot to that about the pitfalls of perfection and how to stay away from that. And the same thing here, right? Um, I think even when you practice like mindful listening, just see if 
if you can be gentle with yourself for the times that you do feel like you want to lash out or um, are very reactive and then every day or, you know, work a little bit more towards becoming more attuned to, to what's being triggered. And then ultimately learning to take that pause. And that's the pause that Dr. Frankel like speaks about, right? In every situation we can either respond or react. And it's that pause in between our, um, impulse and our actual response that will help us you know, respond. And in this case, the, the pause is the listening. Mm. You know, and it's so interesting. <clears throat> I have this post saved from you that is in total alignment with what we're talking about now. Um, it's 10 life-saving statements to say more. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'll list the 10. You said, I'm proud of you. You're safe with me. I'm here with you. I'm listening to you. Your feelings are valid. You're not alone. You matter to me. How can I best support you? Your pain doesn't define you. Mm-hmm. And this post means so much to me because I we've all been on both sides of this. Yes. We've, we've either delivered these comforting words or these comforting words have been said to us when we needed them. And it's honestly one of the most beautiful human moments when someone can just say what you need to hear in that moment. You know, I'm listening to you. Mm. I'm proud of you. Yeah. You matter to me. And you're not alone. For me personally, I love that one because I remember when I was going through the trauma that I went through uh, younger, I always felt as a consequence of it, I felt alone. And so when the people around me would say, you're not alone, it would always ease the pain for me. So I I just really wanted to highlight that post and those phrases uh, because they're just so important. And I'll say them again for anybody who's listening. I'm proud of you. You're safe with me. I'm here with you. I'm listening to you. Your feelings are valid. You're not alone. You matter to me. How can I best support you? Your pain doesn't define you. Thank you. I actually needed to hear that right now. So I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I think these are words that we don't say enough, right? I think we're a society that likes to swoop in and, and try and fix and solve. And I'm not throwing shade to anyone who's trying to do that. It's all coming from a place of, you know, I want to help you. I feel helpless. And I think a more efficient way instead of just immediately problem solving or throwing, you know, some toxically positive um, tropes, you know, out there is to just hold someone. And obviously therapy is complex, right? The training is long, right? It trained for like years and years um, and then had a postdoc. And I still find (laughs) that some of the most pivotal moments are really just about making space for someone, creating a safe space for someone to be seen and someone to be heard in that like deeper way, that vulnerable way. So I appreciate that. And yeah, I appreciate also 
your journey as well. I know that you speak um, so vulnerably on social media about it, um, whether it's your sober journey or your right because of your, you know, the trauma that you experienced growing up in a family with alcoholics. And so, yeah, I want to just humbly let you know that I'm listening. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, we all have a calling. We all have different purposes in life. And, you know, one of the things just speaking for my own journey, I never wanted my pain to only be pain. Mm. You know, I always wanted my pain to be able to, first of all, I wanted to heal it, which <laughs> I did. And it's still doing, still doing, did it, but still doing. And so, um, you know, I feel good there. But then also, I just recognized at an early age, some of the consequences of shame, you know, you hide, you don't want people to know what you're going through, what you went through, and some of the consequences of the trauma. Oh, you just want to keep it to yourself. You don't want to ask for help. You don't want to be open, be vulnerable about it. And, um, you know, the most important thing for us human beings is stories. We love stories. Stories is how we remember different terms and different phrases and different feelings. And, you know, that's why movies are so big and songs. And, you know, we love stories. And so I just felt called, I've always felt called to, you know, mention those pieces of my story. Like the trauma, I'm not my trauma, you know. Uh, it's just something I went through and, and that's okay. And uh, I just use it as leverage in conversation. So other people know, hey, you know, you went through it too. And it's okay. We can still free ourselves from it. Uh, not saying it's easy, but it's possible. And that's yeah. what I'm encouraged by, that it's possible to free our energy and to to just move forward and, you know, step into our highest self, which is what I want to do, and which is why I'm here, why why I'm doing this work, why you're doing, yeah. doing the work you're doing. So my last question for the day is this. You're stuck on an island and you only have three musicians that you can listen to. What are your three musicians? They could be dead or alive. They could be a solo act. It could be a group. <laughs> three musicians that you're listening to on the island. On oh, the island with Dr. Jen. Yeah. Oh, my God. This is this is <laughs> the three J's. Janice, Joni, Joan. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> jo Janice Joplin, Joan Baez, and Joni Mitchell. Okay. Okay. You have to send me some, <laughs> some, some songs. Oh, I'm a folk music. Just, okay. Yeah. But, you know, of course, Brandy Carlisle thrown in there. Um, a little bit of, um, you know, Leonard Cohn. <laughs> I, I, I might need you to make me a playlist. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, really I need you to. Yeah. I really yeah, need a I, I need a playlist. I need a playlist because you're so I've heard the names that you said, but I don't know off the top of my head, you know, their song. So yeah, I'm like, hey, you know, I, I like to go for walks pretty much every day or every other yeah. day. So yeah, I definitely will grab a playlist and, and, and listen to some 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 of this good music. music. Yep, incoming folk music playlist incoming for you. <laughs> oh, and last thing too, yeah. tell us um your book title, where we can get the book. How we can get connected with you? Uh, if people are you available for new clients, you know, give us the rundown on how we can yeah. get in touch with you. Thank you. So the book, Quick Calm: Easy Meditations to Short Circuit Stress Using Mindfulness and Neuroscience, available at all you know books, major bookstores online, and I'm at Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Jen at sorry at Doctor Jen Wolken one N. Dr. Jen Wolken. And um, 
you know, very blessed that my practice is, is at capacity right now. However, I do have some upcoming offerings um, and in, in terms of coursework and resource packets and actually, you know, audio meditations. And I'm going to be writing a second book. Um, so I would love to just be in community with anyone on here who is moved or, or who feels that something that we said today resonated with them. It would be an actual honor. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Everybody go grab the book, please. This, this, this work is so important. And, you know, like I said, it's not every day that we get to sit down and talk with someone of your level and of your, your pedigree. So just thank you so much for making space for coming on the Free Your Energy podcast. And we can't wait to have you back on. Yeah, I'm excited. I feel like there is, we're just getting started. There's so much I want to talk with you about. So I'm very humbled. Thank you very much for having me. And I will practice receiving what you just said. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. Reviews are everything. Please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope this helped you. I hope it served you. And I hope you continue to free your energy.